The Social Detective is an independent true crime podcast. We cover cases to raise awareness and educate our listeners. In doing so, we share our sources. However, we also share our own opinions. When we do that, we state our opinions, our podcast. This podcast also covers cases that may depict sexual violence, racial violence, graphic language, and sexual overtones. We do this because it's important to the case. We do not do this gratuitously. Due to this, this podcast is not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. Also, certain themes may be triggering to certain people. So please take heed and listen wisely. If you or someone you know is suffering mental health crisis, there is help out there. You can text or call 988. This line is available 24 seven and in multiple languages. Please know you are not alone. People keep asking if I'm back. Hey guys, Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. And yeah, we're back. Sorry for the hiatus, but I promise we've been faithfully working hard and just so busy we haven't been able to sit down and record. But today's case was recommended to us by a faithful listener, not only a faithful listener, a true friend and a hardworking crime fighter. She's also an amazing brand creator. So if you are looking to revamp any of your brands, photos, or anything else, reach out to Katrina Marshall. I know you guys see her on my social media. She's also been working really, really hard on her aunt's murder in Dallas, Texas, Katrina Mowry. I know you guys have seen that case. It's in our archives and she posts it everywhere. She makes sure her aunt is never forgotten. She is such an amazing individual. Please make sure you check her out. Now, I've discussed in several podcasts the inequality that seems to occur in crime solving. There have been open discussions about racial inequalities in the media coverage on homicides or missing persons of minorities or the missing and indigenous women, as we've talked about a lot on Kendra Botello. However, there is something else that is rarely discussed but we see it quite a bit here in Kansas, and that is the socioeconomic component, especially when it occurs in homicides. When somebody is murdered in Kansas and there is a socioeconomic disproportion, you will see a lot of different things happen on how that murder is handled by law enforcement not only by law enforcement, but by media on the amount of press that that person receives. Now that has changed. There are some amazing journalists out there who, regardless of what that victim did for a living, how that victim lived their lives, 
there are amazing journalists out there who are giving fair coverage. But we are slowly getting there. But in the past, that didn't happen. And I think that is the reason we have so many cold cases. Like in today's cold case, the tennis spades, Gina Ciphers. Here it seems you have better odds of having your case solved depending on what neighborhood the crime occurred or who the victim knew. Now, I know this is going to rub some people wrong, but I'm still fired up. I'm fired up because I have seen people on social media with huge platforms pouring all of their resources, hashtagging cases that law enforcement has already arrested the people involved. Cases like the Gilgo Beach and the Idaho murders, and I'm sorry, I am not going to mention the murderers' names. They're animals, and they're not worthy of spreading their names any further than these people with the huge platforms already are. They are wasting all of their resources talking about these cases over and over and over and over again on Twitter, on Instagram, on every social media platform over and over and over again while these unsolved cases are going back to collecting dust. While these missing cases are not getting shared because you are obsessed with talking about these people, these quote-unquote serial killer. The victims are still there because they're not splashy enough for your social media. They don't get the attention. And that is making me furious. And yeah, that makes me call you out. And that makes me angry because advocacy doesn't matter which hashtag will give you the most attention. Which case is most interesting to you? These are the cases that deserve our attention. These are the families that deserve our attention. And we owe them. They don't, these cases, they are going to court. They don't require 24-hour feeding frenzy that you guys are giving them. There are so many unsolved cases out there. So many victims and their families and the missing persons that are waiting for answers. My platform isn't as large as yours. But I'm hoping with all of these listeners that I do have, the cases and information that we're going to grow. And not for me. I hope we're going to grow so that we can get the attention on the cases that you're not putting the attention on. Because of victims like Gina and Krista, They've waited far too long for justice. It shouldn't matter whether they were popular in high school or whether they have a pseudo-celebrity status, whether they have somebody who had a traumatic enough background sharing their case. They deserve just as much as the victims of serial killers or wannabe serial killers, or people who fake their abductions. All of these people deserve attention. 
So today, let me introduce you to Gina Cyphers. Gina Cyphers was born June 22, 1971 in Concordia, Kansas. She grew up working on a farm, riding horses and jogging with her two brothers and her sister. And from the time Gina was a teenager, she loved to cook, which that's after my own heart. She took that love of cooking and began working at the Thunderbird restaurant in Concordia while in high school. She and her boyfriend, Jimmy Anderson, they met in Concordia and they moved to Salina, Kansas three years prior to her murder. After moving to Salina, Gina Cyphers continued to embrace her love of cooking at the Red Roof Inn and then later at Russell's Restaurant. But after the birth of James, her son, she then embraced motherhood and became a stay-at-home mom. Gina had even won an award for her double chocolate chip cookies at the county fair. For Gina, life was perfect spending her time reading, baking, and being a mom. It was just a normal day for her. She would get up on Tuesdays and Thursdays and take James to mom's day out at a local church. Now she and Jimmy, they shared a vehicle. So on those days, she would take Jimmy to the local machinery manufacturer that he worked at in the town of Salina, Kansas. It's just one of those normal days, December 28th, 1995. It's cold outside. It's icky, but she gets everybody up, drives Jimmy to his job at the ma machinery manufacturer in their town of Salina, and she goes back to the house before taking James to Mom's Day Out. Now, Gina dropping James off will be the last moments he will get to spend with his loving mom ever again. He is working his job at the machinery shop when he receives a phone call from the church, his son, where his son is attending daycare. Now, to say he's surprised by this phone call is an understatement because Gina had a schedule that never varied. I mean, they lived a very quiet life and it ran always on schedule. Gina was a perfect mom. So when the daycare calls him to say, Gina, who was scheduled to pick up James at 11.30, never arrived, Jimmy's terrified. He knows something has to be wrong here. Now, remember, Gina has their one family car. So Jimmy's freaking out. A coworker loans Jimmy his car so Jimmy can find out what's going on. And Jimmy is so certain that something is wrong with Gina, he goes straight to their home. He doesn't pass go, doesn't collect $200. He goes straight to their home. He doesn't even pick up James from daycare. Now, here's something when this, when Gina Cipher's case is shared and when it has been shared throughout media, when it's been shared throughout time, this is something that's really bothered me, and this is where I'm talking about the socioeconomic difference. Gina lives in a mobile home, not a trailer. Yes, they did live in a mobile home court. They lived in Faith Court Trailer Park. They lived at 721 West Cloud, Lot 54. 
However, whenever I see the distinction written out in articles, they always said the trailer, the trailer. Normally, whenever you hear about a victim or finding a victim, it's always in their home. But everybody always made a point of calling it a trailer. When they get to a trailer, it was almost like they were immediately providing a barrier to Gina as a victim. And I want first-time podcasters, I want first-time journalists, media, whoever, you can create a barrier for the victim with just your words. So please remember that as you are sharing the victim stories. But however, let's get back to the case. Jimmy arrives at their home on West Cloud and he already knows something is off because their car is parked in front of their home. Their car is parked outside, leading him to believe Gina is home. But why hasn't she picked up James? Is she hurt? Is she sick? So many terrifying thoughts are going through Jimmy's head. But none of these thoughts could prepare him for the true answer as to why Gina had not picked up their son from daycare. Jimmy walks in the front door to see Gina laying on the floor of their living room with a bag covering her face. Now, it's never stated what type of bag this is. In fact, nobody truly tells law enforcement, never really comes forward to tell a lot about this bag. But the gossip mail runs deep in small towns. And so we find out that there is a bag. Jimmy, immediately, he runs to Gina's side and he tries to help her. He tries to render aid, but when he realizes that there is nothing he can do, he calls 911. When police and authorities arrive, it's confirmed that Gina Cyphers has been long dead before Jimmy ever arrived. When Salina police arrived, one of the first things that they did notice was that whoever was responsible for this crime had attempted to cover up the crime scene with a bottle of cleaning product. But regardless of whatever their attempts were, forensics was able to find quite a bit of bodily fluids. Now, there are conflicting reports as to whether Gina was sexually assaulted. But as we've run into with Krista Martin's case, there are things that the police department just aren't willing to come right out and say. Again, as a small town, you just end up finding out and knowing things. Another thing that police officers ran into is the fact that the home was in a complete disarray. They're worried that whoever attacked Gina had ransacked the home. However, that is completely cleared up when Jimmy points out that they're in the middle of renovating. And so all the items that were kind of everywhere, it starts to make sense to police officers. So it takes them a little bit, but they're figuring out, okay, what is actually crime scene and what is the homeowners created? So they're going through the scene and trying to figure it all out. Everything kind of becomes double duty. Now, according to reports from an article in the Wichita Eagle, Gina had been strangled and then stabbed multiple times. We're thinking in that order. Now, there was a weapon 
found at the home. However, investigators are wanting to keep that close to the chest. They're not wanting to disclose what the weapon is. Now, another thing though that police do share in this case that I find extremely unusual is that Gina had no defensive wounds. Now, for you social detectives out there, you know why this is extremely unusual. Everybody generally is going to fight back in a situation. Unless there was a use of some type of restraint, the victim is unconscious, or there was some sort of manipulation of the victim, like a psychological factor of a threatening of a loved one or holding of a threatening of a child. So to say that maybe she was strangled unconscious or a blitz attack first. Now, police are saying there were no signs of a forced entry, so it didn't look like anything had been stolen. Again, remember, this is a few days after Christmas. Gina's parents had given her around $150 at Christmas, and that was still there along with the contents of her purse. Now, the contents of her purse were thrown about the living room, but they were all there. So, police take the idea of robbery and pull that off the list of reasons that this attack occurred. Throughout this time, detectives also take Jimmy down to the station for questioning because it's not only the person who find her, it's also the person who's closest to the victim that they want to talk to first. But I want to do a quick rundown of a timeline of what's occurred so far. Now, the daycare phoned Jimmy at the machine shop at 11.45. Jimmy goes to the home and finds Gina and calls 911, and the officers have their home surrounded by crime scene tape by 12.30. So let's back it up a moment. Gina drops Jimmy off at his place of employment at 7 a.m. She drops James off at the church at nine. We're not able to account for those that time period between nine and 11.45. But the place is surrounded with crime scene tape by 12.30. I mean, this is a compact period of time. But there is one still outstanding fact. No one has picked James up from daycare yet. That poor little kid is still at daycare wondering where mom is. But that's about ready to get handled because detectives and a police chaplain are on their way to break the news to Gina Cipher's sister, Maria Marcotte, who also lives in the area so that she can go pick up James. And this is also something I want to discuss. Because this group rolls up to the house now, Maria wasn't there, so they tell her husband, who calls Maria and asks her to come home. Maria's entire world is about ready to be shattered. Not only that, she has to take the news that her sister has been murdered. She has to go pick up her nephew from daycare. And then they say, oh, by the way, we need you to tell the rest of the family. This is a lot of stuff to dump on a family member. Now, we, I think law enforcement is improving. 
A lot of law enforcement agencies are now bringing advocates in instead of chaplains, which I think advocates or social workers are so much better trained on dealing with the situation. And they are coming in hand with resources to assist in these types of situations. But I think there is still a long way to go in helping families when it comes to breaking the news in deaths of a loved one. You have no idea how many family members, when they come to me with their stories of what has occurred to their loved ones when they're wanting help in these cold cases, the first thing I hear is, how they were told about the death of their loved one or how they were told that their loved one is missing. And that appears to be the first chain in the most traumatic thing that has happened to them. And I think as law enforcement, if that one key could change, I think that could alter the way families could deal with this stressful situation so much. I believe in having advocates with resources and giving families who have been down this road themselves, giving them something to be a key in and providing them the opportunity to help others down this path would be an amazing bridge, not only in the community, but also in bridging problems that might be going on in the faces of law enforcement right now. But let's go back to what's going on with Jimmy as he's talking with detectives at the station. Now, detectives say that Jimmy appeared to be in shock and he's grief stricken. I mean, everybody handles grief differently, but he seemed to be in they didn't think there was anything off with the way Jimmy was behaving. And he answered all of their questions openly. He talked about their relationship. He talked about everything in an open manner. He told detectives that they were a private couple and they only socialized with each other or family. He said Gina was a mom and a baker. She didn't work outside the home. She took James to a free Mom's Day Out program at the church every Tuesday and Thursday. But other than that, she was at home with James. They just did not lead a high-risk lifestyle. The day of the murder, again, Gina dropped Jimmy off at work around 7, and that was the last time he spoke to her. He didn't speak to her on the phone. When the daycare called him, he tried to call her. She didn't answer. That's when he knew he needed to get home. Now, that day was a very cold, nasty day out. There was a lot of snow on the ground. So he didn't think she would have taken James out to do a lot of outdoor activities. And there wasn't any extra visible tracks outside like they were outside doing a whole lot. So detectives think that she just went back home and right back indoors. Now the daycare reports Gina dropping James off at the daycare, which is only 10 minutes from their home at nine o'clock. A neighbor states that they had seen the family car outside of the home not long after that. And again, normally Gina is just home alone. 
If she's not home alone, she's only accompanied by James or Jimmy. They're reclusive people. But this is a routine. She has a routine down. So if anyone is watching, they would know this. But detectives are saying, ah, it's a crowded neighborhood. You know, the neighborhood would notice if there is an, an outsider around, right? If there's somebody lurking around this neighborhood, people in the neighborhood would know. And nobody in the neighborhood reports any outsiders roaming around, no weird cars, no nothing going on. So, it's no outsider. But, could there be somebody inside the neighborhood? That's when they find out about the maintenance man of Faith Court. There's this maintenance guy that maintains all of the trailers. And the women who live in the trailer court, they find him to be pretty obnoxious. He talks very vulgar and just none of the women like him. He's just makes them, they call him creepy. So detectives are like, all right, this is our guy. We want to talk to him next because yeah, you want to go talk to the creepy guy in the neighborhood. And guess what? This creepy maintenance guy, he was due to see Gina the morning she was killed. Isn't that a dink? Gina and Jimmy were trying to sell a stove they were keeping at the local storage unit within the park. The storage unit that the maintenance guy had access to. And it just so happens that particular morning, he had found a buyer for the stove. So the guy pays the maintenance dude for the stove. And the maintenance dude is supposed to turn around and take the money to Gina. But this sketchy maintenance dude tells police, oh, no, 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 no. I never made it by there. Nope, never made it. But let's remember, there, there is no forced entry of Gina's home. And she's very introverted. She doesn't open the door to anybody she does not know. And if you're an introverted person, what do we do if somebody rings our doorbell or knocks on our door? We scurry like mice and go hide and hope they go away if we don't know who it is. But if it's somebody we know, and it's somebody who's bringing money, well, yeah, we're going to answer the door. So she might crack open the door to take the money, and that would give that person enough space to gain entry. But... There was no stove money at the crime scene per detectives. But my mind is going, uh, duh. If somebody is using cleaning products to try to clean up the crime, wouldn't they also take the money to try to cover their tracks as well? Now, to make all of this sketchiness even more sketchy, radar starts going off when Gina's parents tell detectives that this maintenance dude also had asked Gina to make a key to her home and they were like don't you dare do not give this crude maintenance dude a key to your home he's not the landlord or anything you don't owe him shit do not give him a key but you know if being creepy was illegal the gels would be even more over capacity 
Now, detectives have been able to confirm that Jimmy was not involved in what happened to Gina, and they've pretty much been able to weed most people out except for creepy maintenance guy, but they're still grasping for any type of information they can find. And the gossip mill is still running high because that's what happens in a small town. And then seven months after Gina's murder, Salina Police Department is hit with another gruesome killing. Actually, three. At 12.30 p.m. on July 22nd, 1996, the police arrive at 1721 Glen to find Dolores McKim, 81, Carol Abercrombie, 56, and Christopher Abercrombie, only five years old. They were all, they'd been beaten and bludgeoned at the Abercrombie home. And people thought maybe there was some sort of link between these two crimes. You know, you start to wonder because that's the way rumors go in a small town. And people are looking at it. And the only things that were taken from this house were purses that belonged to McKim and Abercrombie. And police know that for sure because they were able to find the purses in the car that had also been stolen from the McKim's house. So they're starting to think, okay, this crime scene is not looking a lot like Gina's crime. The car was abandoned in a parking lot at an apartment complex near Crawford and Marymount Streets. There's surveillance cameras at the quick shop, which were inside the convenience store. They weren't able to capture pictures of the person who had used their credit cards. And however, an automated mechanism that was used out at the gas pump, that was used. But they were able to use an ATM on Bosselman at a truck stop. So authorities actually have some traction with this case. And as police were gathering that, they put out a governor's reward within 10 days on this case. And a lot of businesses also contributed money for any information that they could within this case while they were enhancing the photograph and looking for any image. Now, because of the fact that police did have so much information, they were able to move quicker on this case. This case even made it to America's Most Wanted where the man, Alan Eugene White, was found out. They had his image bright and happy right there. A counselor in Boston had seen Alan Eugene White's face while at the shelter, and, and he saw the suspect's face on the show America's Most Wanted. And one of the crazy things about that is the Fox Network had just canceled the show but after a flood of viewer complaints about its cancellation, the network changed its heart and decided, oh, we're going to go ahead and put the show back on. 12 minutes into the program, just being re-aired, the counselor phoned the program. That notified the authorities in Kansas and 
Alan Eugene White is in handcuffs. Now, as I said before, Paula Zahn covers this case amazing. Again, it's called Heartbreak in the Heartland. You can find it on Investigation Discovery. It is a horrific case. The police did an amazing job investigating it. So please go watch it. This case is about Gina Ciphers. So we're going to devote our time to that. But please go check that out. This is an amazing episode to watch. But initially, residents and investigators did see a lot of similarities with this case and Gina's case. You know, they saw, you know, a sexual assault and a possible sexual assault, I should say. And, you know, this violent assault as this violent crime. So they're going, huh, could there have something to do with it? Then they find out when they get the suspect, well, Alan worked at Russell's restaurant. So did Gina. Yeah, they didn't work there at the same time. But when you find a violent sexual sadist and he'd been in such close proximity with a victim, you're thinking maybe there could be something. But then Alan's sister comes forward and says, well, he was in Georgia when Gina was murdered. A hundred percent. I know where he was when Gina was murdered. So he didn't have anything to do with that murder. And also remember those bodily fluids? Yeah, I'm pretty sure police matched those up and there wasn't any common denominator there. There is one common denominator in this case that a lot of the people in Salina do talk about, and that is that governor's reward. Remember how that governor's reward was put out on that, that case that involved Allen within 10 days, and then a lot of other people raised money to add to it? Now, I know it was a splashy case, you know, and I don't say splashy in any dishonorable way to the victims, but... It, it, it involved a child. It was three people. It, it was a very horrific case that happened. And that governor's reward was put out in 10 days. But could it also have something to do with the fact that it happened in a more affluent community? It happened in the same neighborhood as the Kansas governor's parents. Could that possibly have something to do with the fact that a governor's reward was put out so quickly. Also that the media would constantly talk about the fact that Gina was reportedly living in a trailer park instead of in the Kansas governor's parents' neighborhood. It was constantly reported that she was found in a trailer. That just couldn't be missed. In any of the news reports and media, why would they keep reporting that difference? A victim of a murder is a victim of a murder. It doesn't matter where they're found, what they do for a living. A crime is still a crime. And the person who committed it still needs to be found. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with how a governor's reward works, governor's rewards are basically an amount of money that is set that leads to a conviction and $5,000 is a lot of money but it must be requested by law enforcement. Now, again, a triple homicide that was requested within 10 days by law enforcement, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But Gina's governor's reward, it didn't get requested by law enforcement until two years after the crime. But again, 
I understand a triple homicide in an affluent neighborhood does get more media coverage, but that shouldn't happen. Also, a person's socioeconomic status shouldn't matter. Where a victim is found shouldn't matter. Gina's crime was heinous. She was assaulted. She was strangled. She was stabbed multiple times. She was found with a bag over her head. She was the mother who loved her child and devoted her life to taking care of him. And yet her case only received scant local attention and mostly due to word of mouth and because her family fought for her. Now, law enforcement stated the reason that they pursued the other case heavier was because they already had a suspect. They had something tangible to go to the media with. And I understand that. Absolutely. When you have something tangible, you've got something you're ready to go forward with and you need that airtime. However, it is sometimes the secrecy that law enforcement is holding on to, that little something that they think they're holding on to, that they think will hold and solve that case. That can sometimes be the one thing that keeps that victim from being in the spotlight. I'm saying to all of you law enforcement that sometimes these crimes and whether or not that victim gets justice, it does hinge on you. It's not all on the family on giving that victim their day on social media. These crimes need to be looked at, not just by you internally. If you want people to see something, say something, it's up to you to provide as much focus as it does the family. Sometimes they don't have families always heralding them out there. Sometimes the families are tired. Sometimes the families have been pushing these cases out there for 30 years. They need you out there, and I know you're already overworked. I know you're tired, but you have us. You have us social detectives that you need to put your faith and trust in, and I know that's not easy. But you need to do something because your system is broken. You have so many unsolved cases. You need to try something different. Now, America's Most Wanted did come into play for Gina's family. They were watching a segment when they saw Charlie Parker, a private investigator who has a nonprofit private investigating firm in San Antonio, Texas. And I have my own thoughts on Charlie Parker, and I don't want to get into it. And the Ashley Flowers has the amazing podcast, The Deck, where she also covers Gina Cipher's case, and I never want to reinvent the wheel. She does a great job of talking about what Charlie Parker does on this case. So if you want to hear more about Charlie Parker, please scoot on over to her and listen to that. So I'm going to cover it just ever so briefly. But here is one thing I do want to talk to my family members, not my family members, but all of you family members out there who are working so diligently on your loved one's cold cases, on your loved one's missing cases. 
Yeah, I know a lot of you will talk to me about wanting to hire a private investigator. And you've heard about my own sagas in talking to private investigators. And I want to share a few pieces of advice with you. Sometimes you guys think, or you might think, a private investigator is the magic piece to the puzzle that will come to solving your loved one's case or providing answers in your loved one's case. And that might be. But I want you to take just a few pieces of advice to heart from me, the retired criminologist. Law enforcement does not or might not look as favorably upon private investigators that you might think they do. Also, they look at a private investigator just as much of a civilian or sometimes as an adversary. So tread lightly. And I want to say when I have family members who come to me and they are so frustrated about the lack of communication on their loved one's case, one thing I want to remind them of is communication is a two-way street. If you are frustrated at the lack of communication on your loved one's case, have you talked to the lead investigator on your loved one's case? If you are planning to hire a private investigator, please talk to the lead investigator on your loved one's case before you do that. I'm not saying get their permission. I'm just saying tell them that that is something you're planning to do. Tell them it's something you are looking into. They need to know as much going on with your loved one's case as you do. In order to find answers, they need to know what is going on. Again, that information goes both ways. I know sometimes you feel like you're in a closet. You feel like you're being left out. And there are, believe me, there are times that these detectives, these investigators have to, I know it sounds insane, but there are times that they absolutely have to shield information from you. And this is coming from someone who is so angry that I don't have information on my loved one's case. But there are things that I understand they absolutely cannot share. I think there are things that they can share, but there are some things that they just cannot share. And we, as the loved ones, have to understand that. But investigators also have to understand that as loved ones, there are sometimes there are things that we just have to do because we can't sit idle. So we are trying to build bridges not burn them. But let's go back to Charlie Parker. Now, Charlie Parker, he went to the press in Salina with his theories, the deck with Ashley Flowers. And one of the things that I do want to caution you if you go into this episode is that as he's talking about his theories and everything is he didn't have access to any crime scene photos. He didn't have any access to any crime reports. The police department did not, they treated Charlie Parker as a civilian. 
So everything Charlie Parker went into was by his own investigations of talking to people and pounding the pavement and talking, basically going through the rumor mill. So I just want to caution people on that. We, we, it's our podcast, our opinion. That is something we deal with. So I, I want to be very, very honest about that. Um, there are a few things that do kind of hit me raw within that, the Dex podcast of Charlie Parker utilizing terms within his article of Salina, uh, with the Salina paper, um, stating that Gina Cyphers had lost a lot of weight recently. She was at her prettiest. It, it came across as very misogynistic. So, you can go listen to the deck and decide what you want to do. But what I will say is that the Salina police believe that Gina's killer, and they believe there is only one killer, and the majority of the time, the police had focused on this maintenance guy, and I completely agree with that. I really had an agreement, too, on this creepy maintenance guy. You look at opportunity, you look at history, you look at everything, and everything comes back to creepy maintenance guy. And without having creepy maintenance guy's name, you can't really see if creepy maintenance guy was ever in the system, which I'm assuming not, that they were never able to get DNA on him. Because you know they had the bodily fluids. So I wonder if they ever were able to do any or any forensic family genealogy. I would really like to see if creepy family maintenance guy's family was any family is in jet match. And they're able to put that into jet match. Because they ended up taking the fluids and they have sent the fluids off to Maryland. Now I'm not going to get into... Charlie's theory, but I will say that Salina police believe that Gina's killer, and again, there's, they believe there's only one killer, and for most of the time, they focused on creepy maintenance guy, and with that, I agree. But for a while, a new guy popped up on the radar because Nebraska reached out to them, and again, I love it when other law enforcement agencies keep in communication, because they had a cold case that finally got solved here recently. And it was this guy who had beaten and stabbed a woman in the late 1980s that they couldn't find. But due to genealogy, they were able to close in on this guy. And in reviewing this guy, they thought he may have been in the Salina area around the time Gina was killed. So they sent the information over to Salina PD. But through the process of elimination and tracking everything, they don't think this guy was around the same time Gina was murdered. But everything to me keeps coming back to creepy maintenance guy. And I really wonder, we never got the name of creepy maintenance guy. He's just forever for us going to be creepy maintenance guy. But I know people in the Salina area, they know the name of the creepy maintenance guy. And I know creepy maintenance guy is no longer with us. He has passed on. And I wonder if anyone in his family had submitted their DNA to Jed Match. Those fluids that were found at Gina Cypher's crime scene 
have been sent on to Maryland. And I believe it was Maryland that they said they sent it on to, but they've sent it on for further testing. And yeah, that testing, people think, you know, you watch these shows and it's so quick it comes back and I really wish it would, but it's, it's a long process and it's just, it takes forever. And I really want CC more on this case. I really, really would love to see CC more on this because I really think we have creepy maintenance guy. I really think creepy maintenance guy is the one on this. And I would love to see that true, even though he's no longer around. And a lot of Gina's family is no longer here. Gina's sister is still here though. Gina's son has grown up and he has a family of his own. And he named a daughter after his mother. Jimmy is gone now as well. But even though so many are gone, the question still remains, who killed Gina Cipher? That governor's reward still remains. It may have taken a long time to get it, but we still want the answer. Who killed Gina Cipher? Because justice is still waiting. As I said before, Gina Cyphers is the Ten of Spades on the Kansas Cold Case deck of cards. You can find her case on Ashley Flowers' The Deck. On the card, it states, on December 28, 1995, Gina Cyphers was found dead in her trailer home in Salina. She had been stabbed, strangled, and possibly sexually assaulted. It is stated by the Salina Police Department. If you have any information about any case, please call 1-800-KS-CRIME, 1-800-572-7463. And remember, let's do better when we're sharing these cases about every victim, every case. They all need equal attention and equal rewards. Be safe.